the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Back to the show. Are you ready for season two of Discography? I'm your host, Mark with a C, and Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canon albums of first release material to see who they really are and how it all stacks up. And you should know that for season two, we will be discussing the albums by the one, the only, Janet Jackson. Singer, songwriter, dancer, actress, a household name, one of the biggest stars the Western world has ever known, and though she sold over 100 million records worldwide, few have really poured through her canonical albums to see how they stack up. From her unsung early recordings to the genre-defining albums Rhythm Nation and Velvet Rope, all the way to 2015's Unbreakable, we're taking the deepest dive into Janet Jackson's studio records one can possibly imagine. Season 2 of Discography premieres on July 17th, 2018 only on Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to this week's episode of This Must Be The Gig. I'm your host, Leo Phillips. And for you pod people out there, if you have just tuned in for the very first time, do not be ashamed. We all love you here, newbie, new man, new woman, new everyman, new everything. Because this show is your backstage pass to the world of live music. It's the ins and the outs of the process and also the experience via interviews with legendary artists, set designers, choreographers, and many more. And you know what? After this episode, just make sure to go back a few weeks and binge all of the stories about the one gig that has changed people's lives and find out which song it was, which venue it happened at. Because you know what? My question is always and will always be, what would you note as the most memorable live performance of your life? I feel like it can completely define a person or wreck you. And I want to know all of it. I want to know all of the gushy, oozy things. Uh. And in the studio with me is... Engineer Adam. Engineer Adam, hey. (laughs) That was actually quite good. Hey. Hey. I I don't want to talk out of turn, but my personal live life changer. (laughs) Yeah. Fred Lundberg Holmes Lightbox Orchestra. Local jazz outfit. Improviser signaled via light bulb set up into a suitcase. It's insane. How old were you? I was 18, I think. Something like that. Wait, was that maybe your first? Little, maybe oh, a little your, older. Your memorable. Yes. Your most that was the, memorable. That was maybe the life changer. That is a freaking amazing story. Thank you for sharing. I'm prompted. When, when I'm the guest on a full episode and you just want to talk to me <laughs> and people are like, ooh, I no, can't I wait for that episode. Hit us up at TMBTGPod if you want the Engineer Adam episode. Yay. Yeah. We're gonna or get, EA. We're going to get six mentions. <laughs> 
maybe four yeah, and a half. Maybe two. Four point two point five. Maybe two five. because my parents will definitely be those two. Oh yeah, yeah. and we love them. So let's get to the episode. It has been such an incredible journey so far, and this week's episode is an exciting one. We have fellow podcaster, I can now introduce him as that, Adam Juritz from Counting Crows. I cannot wait to listen to his podcast. I didn't know this. Very cool. There's loads of episodes. Go and listen. But this week's episode, let's go back to my episode. This is like a crossover bonanza. So this week's episode evokes a particular warm and really nostalgic feeling. I don't know about you, but the Counting Crows are one of the bands that can totally encapsulate a moment and an era and an experience. And there's just so many memories of obviously the one of the most well-known songs, Mr. Jones, on the radio, on a long drive home, around a bonfire, which happened for me at summer camp. Uh, of August and everything after in the height of August and every month after. That's pretty cute. I like that. Thanks. (laughs) And now also, you know, the Counting Crows, they were this alt-rock band that went down smoothly and they never stopped continuing their sounds onto six more records since 1993, culminating in 2014's Somewhere Under the Wonderland. But here we are on the anniversary of the landmark debut, that very debut. 25 years and counting with August and everything after. That's crazy. 25 years. How am I this old? I know. I also thought (laughs) I'm so old. But then you look back and you think of like songs like Anna Begins and as the aforementioned Mr. Jones. And you are teleported back into that time. So you know what? You feel old, but then you feel young. Then you feel old again. Then you feel young. Time traveling with Counting Crows. (laughs) There you go. Uh, I had the chance to speak with Adam about the band Smash debut, the experience of obviously touring those songs more than two decades later, and everything in between. It is not August, but it soon will be. Oh, it would have been great to put this out in August. Yeah, we could. I wonder if August haunts them. Yeah, every August every... is like their month. <laughs> their month. Anyway, here's me and Adam. Enjoy. got to listen to your podcast a little while ago which was great tell me a little bit about that well it just sort of came about sort of strangely organically uh james campion is a a music journalist and he had interviewed me many times over the years Mm. usually for these pretty long in-depth pieces so we would talk for an hour or two and uh, at one point, he said to me, you know, there's way more material in these interviews than I'm ever going to be able to use in any of the articles to <laughs> a book. And I, I sort of chugged it off, and then we'd sit around for four or five hours, and we would just talk about stuff and record it. Because mm-hmm. that was probably October of 2016 when we started. And a year passed, and we went out on tour again last summer. And when we got back home, I kind of got to thinking about what we were doing. I had the same thought about the book that he had about the interviews. And I called him up, and I said, James... These interviews we're doing are so good, but there's way more than we're ever going to use in a book. You're constantly telling me there's much, much too much here. Mm. We should do a podcast, you know, because that's how, you know, I like the idea of writing a book. We can still do that. There's no reason to stop. Uh, But people digest music and music geekery, as I would call it, (laughs) uh, differently anyways, you know. Of course. One of the ways, the best ways to get to people with the kind of stuff we're talking about is podcast mm. that's how people really want to sit around and listen to a couple of geeks talk about music so mm. we should do the book anyway but let's start podcasting every week mm. and so we just started and it was shitty it was really yeah. shitty at first it's hard we didn't, we didn't put out it's the first, so like, hard yeah as soon as we started doing it it started sounding stilted and like mm. uh, like so fake and so the first six or seven i threw out and then we finally got the feel for it and did one that i thought was really good and that was the first one we put out. It was probably the eighth one. But yeah, it's been like the total joy of my life lately. Wow. Uh, I just That's really so love doing it. I love putting it out. Yeah. It's, such a, it's, it's like music geek crack to me. It's exactly <laughs> what musicians want to do. Like I've been yeah. in LA for a while and all my friends in the movie business sitting there all day talking about who sucked and what sucked and what movie <laughs> shit. 
But my musician friends, they just want to talk to you about the latest thing they yeah, heard. Yeah, this passion. Awesome, yeah. And they shove it down your throat. You know? <laughs> and uh, that's kind of like what we're all like. And mm. I mean, now I've got a chance to just do it. I mean, a podcast really commands a different type of passion. I think that there's so much in it that you are learning on a continuous basis that all the shit that you think you knew before about broadcasting and chatting about the things that you love and the things that move you completely go out the window once the, you know, because it's just, it is a bit strange speaking to an invisible audience. It is a little bit, it's strange, but I suppose you do that in essence with your songwriting. I think I look at it more like uh, our audience is each other, mm. me and James. And so I'm just trying to like, surprise him with stuff and you know and we just get into these geeky conversations and yeah. I, I don't really think about the people that much uh don't think about the kind people? of nice i just trying <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, I try not to because that's like it's i know on stage like i don't think about the audience at all i know you can't it. yeah it just you brings just that for yourself yeah i hear you i love that like how you try catch each other out i listened to that one episode where you talk about gang of youths and I love that band and I've seen them perform actually in Australia. And I love how like you gave him your CD and then he landed up totally geeking out on that CD. And then you didn't even get a chance to listen to the album much. And I love that moment where yeah. it was like, oh, fuck you, dude, you've had it. And I haven't even had a moment to listen to it. And I told you about it. <laughs> it was really good. Yeah, my girlfriend told me about the band and raved yeah. about them. And she had tickets to see them play when they were in America. So I went and bought the CD, got it home, flipped out over it like the first listen, and then gave it to James. And like, we got to talk about this band at one point. We got to do a whole mm -hmm. podcast about like stuff. And, and then I never got the damn CD back. So <laughs> I never planned out that podcast. So until like he finally brought it back, I'm like, okay, today we're talking about this. And it was cool, you know, like cause I, they actually, it's funny, they only had three gigs, mm. maybe four. In the first half of this year, I had four gigs, four separate gigs spread out all over that four months. Mm. And one of them on the opposite side of the country was on exactly the day of the New York Gang of Youth show. Oh, so no. You haven't seen them live? No, I missed the show. Oh. No. Oh, wow. If you are moved by their album, they are a live band. I got onto them from seeing them live. I've not seen a band, especially, I mean, they are huge in Australia, but... They play with, he is running and jumping and sweating and his hair's flinging all over the place. It would be amazing for you yeah, to get to see have, them. You know, we asked them to be to open for us this summer. Oh, like, wow. I, I knew they were touring over here. It, it, then, it, like April and May, they mm. were doing shows here and, and around Canada. And I was like, oh, shit, this could be perfect. If they don't mind staying through June, they could start the tour. They could open the shows. Mm. Uh, and then, but they turned out, the reason it wasn't on the thing is because they're going to Europe to play festivals. So, oh, shit. Okay. Uh, they were well, busy. But I wanted them to play with us because I love them. Yeah, that would have been a good fit as well. They have uh, they have very something very, very special about them. And they're not very big in America yet, but I, I'm surprised by that because when I moved here about a year ago, I thought more people knew about them. And then obviously their album came out and it was covered, kind of covered by the you know, blogs and stuff like that. But they should technically, if you looked at them on paper, they should be much bigger than what they are. It's hard to make it happen. I know, you know I know. It catches. They're great, though. Yeah, I know, they're people. fantastic. So so let's go, let's chat a little bit about your history in terms of touring and live performance. Obviously, you've been doing this, if we can call it a collective this, for a very long time. But you also started a little bit later on in your life. Do you think that if you had started out kind of signing to a record label a little bit younger, do you think that you would have taken to it the same way? Or do you think age had anything to do with you know, maybe your approach to songwriting or your approach to fame? Did any of that really matter? I don't know. I mean, one nice thing about it is that we're like 7-0. and 0. We're undefeated on good records. Uh, <laughs> if we had uh, started earlier, that might not have been the case. Um, I don't know that I was that good uh, very much before that. The truth is we were all playing. It's not like we didn't start. We were playing in bands around the Bay Area and no one gave a shit mm. until this band. 
I mean, we were all playing. Maybe we just weren't good enough yet. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I look at the music and I think it, it was not as good as it got. You know, mm. like we got good right when we got signed. Was the first performance not with Counting Crows? Did you perform in coffee houses prior to that with your other bands? Or did you only start performing when you, when you formed the band? No, not in coffee houses. Like we were playing in clubs, rock clubs. Ah. My bands, we were all the same clubs that Counting Crows played in. Himalayans played in. Model Society played in. They were good young bands, but mm. not good enough, I guess. I don't know whether they were good enough or not. But at the same time, I was in Sword Humor mm. and I was in Himalayans playing in all the clubs. Counting Crows had split up the early version of it. Mm. But David and I still pulled together every now and then, like played open mics in coffee houses. But my other bands were all in the clubs right then. Do you remember the first show you ever played? Even, you know, just with the Himalayas, anything that you played first? Do you remember that show at all? Well, my first band is when I'm like 13 years old and we're playing at Time Car Ventures and stuff. Oh, uh, we're playing crazy. Like Beatles, <laughs> Beatles and Stones. And, you know, our parents, each of our parents said they'd buy us like one songbook. Mm. And so we picked the bands that had the most songs. We got a Beatles songbook, a Stone songbook, and a Zeppelin songbook. <laughs> uh, you know, and they were the big, thick ones. Um, so we had those. Uh, that was like my first band. I was probably 14, 13. Mm. And playing bar mitzvahs, was your, were your parents, uh, were, were you born Jewish? Or did you grow up in like a Jewish household? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm Jewish. Uh, I'm also Jewish, as you can tell with my name. That's funny, but playing bar mitzvahs, I just remember my bar mitzvah, it was always like discos because it was in the 90s. So it was always like that kind of Britpop and electronic kind of music, like clubby kind of music. So it's amazing to hear that you played some actual music, you know, actual, you know, real musicians. Well, I think they usually, I mean, I don't remember that clearly because we're talking a long time ago now, it's 40 years ago. Mm. But, uh, you know, they, I think they had bands and they had like, or they had DJs or something as well. And then we would come up and we would play for a while. <laughs> yeah. It, it was a great way to like impress the girls, as I remember. Oh, of course. Man, boy in a band. Totally. When you formed with Counting Crows again with the rest of the guys, do you remember the first show that you played as a band? Because I know, obviously, what's recorded online, but I don't know if that's correct. Because online it says that you played in 91 with the band, but I don't know. Do you remember the first show? Uh, no, I mean, 91, there might be a Counting Crows in 91. That would have been maybe our first shows, because I think we got signed in 92. Mm. Um, or we got signed in late 91 or 92, something like that. We made the record in, the record was made in the fall of 92, to 93 i remember we played shows in january of 92 we played two shows at the i-beam and the kennel club that were showcases and every company in the world offered us contracts oh wow the morning it was the monday after the second show so that was january to february so yeah we probably would have been playing in late it was probably we got together and started playing shows in the fall of 91 like, in a few months later, we got, like, literally records. We got offers from every record company. But wait, did you know, in, that, in January, the, did you know that the record label, the A&Rs were in the audience? Did you know that they were going to be at those shows? Yeah, then, then we did. In January, ah. we did. January, by that time, because that was set up by our, we had just gotten managers. Yes. And they set that up. Um, because this band, I mean, kind of what happened was we... We had, you know, there were like three versions of the band over time that recorded a bunch of stuff, mm. and we had a 15-song demo or so that we passed on to like a family friend of my family's father was a lawyer, and he knew a guy in an office in L.A., and that guy knew another guy that did music stuff. And so through that, four people, this tape got through, and the guy uh, told me, because he, he, he later became our lawyer, he looked at it and he said he laughed because, you know, a demo tape should have one or two, maybe three songs on it at the most. And ours had 15. Mm. And he thought, what a bunch of rubes, you know, <laughs> these idiots who sends 15 <laughs> songs to a lawyer, you know, to a music lawyer. And, uh, but then he put it on and, you know, there's, 
the songs on there. It's like a lot. Half the first album is on there, mm. and he flipped out. <laughs> he called me like three songs into it. I got this phone call, and this guy on the other line said, "Oh my God, this is amazing! Uh, I got to finish listening to it. Do you mind if I just call you tomorrow?" And I was like, uh, "Okay, yeah. Who is this?" <laughs> the guy said, "Who are oh, you?" God, sorry, it's Alan <laughs> Leonard. I'm a lawyer in L.A. I got your tape. Uh, okay, I'll call you tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. Mm. <laughs> and so the next day he called. He had listened to the whole thing and he flipped out and wanted us to come down and visit him. And we did. We went down to a meeting with him. It came about because somebody from the record company had seen us play acoustically and was okay. sort of offering us a deal, but it was a weird deal. And we weren't really comfortable with it. So we thought we'd better get a lawyer. Mm. And we sent the tape to this guy and... From him, we ended up finding some managers. That's all in the fall of 91. By January or so, when the record companies came, yeah, when we knew they were coming. But wait, so I know you're saying this casually, but as a band who's unsigned, you've sent out your demos, you're playing these gigs, knowing that these people are watching you and life might potentially change after that. Weren't you just totally shitting yourself? Like how, because you sound very casual talking about it now, but can you remember how you were feeling before that? Like, did you think about how you were moving on stage? Did you think about how, you know, the songs would translate or did you just go up there and try it out? Um, no, I thought we were great. And I thought that it was nice that someone had finally seen that kind of. And I, I really, I thought we had a very unique way of being on stage. And I thought they would like, I don't know, I just thought we should do our thing. I, I'm never really worried a whole lot about stuff like that. Mm. If they're coming to see you, it's because of what you do. So just do what you do, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. And that, that'll that work. I mean, we've mm. had a lot of luck in our career. But mm. one of the things that's not really luck is that when we got chances, especially in the early days, we showed up. Yeah, that's you know, a good like point. The big moments showed up. We could play live, and we didn't sound like anybody else. Mm. We were doing things other bands weren't doing, you know. And it was pretty dramatic fit on stage. And you know, once we started to get the idea, because also by that time I was getting more confident about it because it was exciting. Like we had a meeting on a Friday. We went down to visit that lawyer, and in talking to him, we realized like what a big deal lawyer he was. And he said to us. You know, I was I played this stuff earlier in the week for one of my some of my clients who are managers, and these two guys would really like to meet with you. You know, could you stick around until Monday and meet with them? We said okay, you know. And when we we stayed with some friends down there, and then on Monday we went to the meeting with these guys, and they managed about ten bands, ten or fifteen, and and their bands were all signed. Mm -hmm. They had Joe Jackson, they had the B Twos, they had Danzig, they had OM, OMD. You know, they didn't have any bands that weren't signed. So, like, when we got out of that meeting, and they were really excited about us. And it just, I remember we went from their office and walked over to Barney's Beanery in L.A., and we were just sitting there for a minute talking, Dave and I, and I was like, wow, you know what? <laughs> we're either going to get signed or we're not good enough. <laughs> because these guys yeah. are going to get us in front of every record company. So They're you have send your choice. Every record yeah. company. Yeah, and they're going to, the record companies are going to listen to them. It's not like it's going to be us sending it mm. because all of their bands are signed. Mm. So they're going to put our stuff in front of everybody, and either they're going to want us or or we're not good enough. Mm. Or, you know, or, something, or, or like no one's going to want us because yeah. this is as good an opportunity as anyone's going to have. After that, everything just seemed like fun <laughs> for a bit. But, I mean, that's a very, like... What's the word? Zen approach, I suppose, to have. Obviously, not letting it get to your head and knowing that you have this one opportunity. And I love your point about saying that you like showed up because I think that a lot of bands, especially when they're first starting out, they let everything else get to them and they don't perform. You know, everything kind of is too, it's too stressful. They let fame get to them. And the fact that you actually took that opportunity and didn't muck up that's a really good first starting point you know especially considering that you knew all of them would be there we're still only doing things at that point that we know how to do yeah like yeah. we're not going to do anything except for we're gonna have to go to some meetings okay i can talk to people mm -hmm. and we're gonna have to play some gigs well we play gigs that's not that wasn't really there was nothing out of our yes. realm of experience yet like when we went in to make a record that was different like that mm -hmm. was hard and that was, we had no experience and mm. no real knowledge of how to make a record. 
You know, and that that was much harder. We're trying to find something that we don't even know what it is yet. That was a lot harder. Mm-hmm. But at the point you're talking about, it's just it's just some gigs. I mean, we've played gigs. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter who's in the audience. I've never cared really all that much about the audience. The, the action in the gig is going on on stage. Mm-hmm. It's you and your band. You know, like later when things got, to, when we start to reach outside of our experience, those were much harder. Then that's yeah. tricky. Yeah, that's a tricky terrain. Most bands will have a musical influence that really stuck and resonated with them. But a lot of bands also, I find it quite interesting, is when they have a stage persona or a stage presence that they find inspiring. Was there anyone that you had been watching or had seen live previous to you playing live? Was there anyone where you saw them play live and you were like, yes. That is exactly what I want to do. No, not like that. I think that influences like that are sort of misunderstood by people outside of musicians. I think you have a million things that get into you and inspire you. And, but I don't know that it's ever as conscious as anyone ever says. They talk about you being influenced by this or that, but it, and you probably are. But it's mm. not that you actually saw it and said, I want to do that. I mean, maybe there were a lot of people who were, I don't know, there's so much music in my life that, uh, you know, I I don't think, I think when I got on stage, the main thing was, I just want to do whatever I want to do, you know, Mm -hmm. just, I'm going to do whatever, whatever I feel like doing right now, and that could change every night and every time, because I had seen a lot of people play, but I wasn't, it's really different in the audience watching than it is on stage doing, Mm. and it just, doesn't it would never seem like any of that stuff really applied mm-hmm. other than some sort of vague lessons like how people who seem to you know i can remember i liked the way that rem played and that all four instruments and the vocals just seemed like part of one whole i grew up in oakland so funk and hip-hop are a big part of that more funk hip-hop was very new then i liked how much the singers were bouncing off that kick drum that the rhythm section in funk music has a huge effect on the singer or nowadays the, the rapper. You know, like there's a lot of, there's a real relationship between those two things that always really appealed to me. Mm. Uh, I liked how Van Morrison would get up on stage and just seem to do whatever he wanted to do. You know, like it didn't seem like he was necessarily ever trying to sing anything like a record. Didn't you fill in for Van Morrison or something? Or am I remembering the wrong story? Didn't you fill in for Van Morrison at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony? When we were making the first record in the middle of the process, Van was getting inducted to the Hall of Fame and he didn't want to come. Oh my God. Which I understand now. (laughs) I now understand that very clearly. You do? Uh, Because I don't like to go to any of those things. We don't really need to decide who's best. It's oh, like the music okay. is this so, thing that comes up from right. independent people. It's a very independent thing to be a musician. It's very much loners who make mm. it. And then these big organizing bodies decide to give out awards when it's really just to get some sales going. I just don't care. You know? mm. Also, I realized through my, my life that, I don't know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was really cool. Um, what happened was he didn't want to come, and they they usually... They were going to ask some other band to do it, but the Robbie Robertson from the band was the uh, he was the music director that year, mm. and he said, uh, "Look, I know these guys because he did know us. We'd met him. I know these guys that are making a record up in the hills. We should uh, they'd be great for this. Mm. Let's get them." I mean, literally, we got asked to do that on a Sunday night. I was up in Berkeley. The rehearsals were Monday, and the show was Tuesday. Oh, my gosh. Well, it was fine. There was plenty of time for us, but it was cool. Now, that's an audience, man. If you think a bunch of record company people have an audience is one thing, how about mm-hmm. when you're at Soundcheck and the audience is Bruce Springsteen, Robbie Robertson, Peter <laughs> Baker, Eric Clapton, Ruth Brown, Katie Lang, Etta James, oh George Clinton. Gosh. The guys, all the members of Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, it's <laughs> mind-blowing. Bruce Springsteen. That's, That's mind blowing. Yeah. Yes. And so and you're saying that you had confidence going into that or were you a tiny bit like a little bit apprehensive, a little bit nervous or not at all? Were you just like, fuck that, I'm just going to go and do this? I thought what we were doing was really cool. It's funny because we went to the rehearsal the day before mm. and we walk in and the doors are playing. Uh, they're playing Roadhouse Blues and Eddie Vedder singing. 
What? And against the wall oh my gosh. Is, is Eric Clapton talking to <laughs> Bruce Springsteen and Don was and Robbie Robertson. And everyone's just sort of hanging out. There's more in there than that. They finish and Robbie's like, hey, these, these are this is Adam and Dave and David, Emmer, Emmer, whatever. I don't know if we call them Emmer or not. He goes, they're going to mm. do the Van Morrison song. So what are you guys doing? And I'm like, well, we're doing Caravan. It's okay. Uh, and uh, what, what, do you want a band around you? Do you want because they have a house band there? It's a Jim Keltner on drums, Don was on bass, wow. Ben Montes from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on keyboards, Robbie on guitar, Bruce on guitar. And they're like, "Do you want a band?" And I was like, "No, we're cool. We got it ourselves." Oh my god! <laughs> just like, and honestly, it's because we had rehearsed it that way. We had rehearsed it with yeah. mandolin and acoustic guitar, and so I knew how to do that. So you we knew what to do, it, you know. And I so mm-hmm. I, was, I was really nervous talking to them, but when he asked me that. Only later did I realize, in retrospect, how arrogant that must have sounded. Mm. No, it's cool. We've got it. Yeah, we, we, we you, like, stand down. We have this. But it was much yeah. scarier to me to think about playing with them than it was to think about doing it ourselves. Sure, I, um, I hear so you. Said, yeah. So they all they all laughed at us when we said that kind of. <laughs> and Robbie's like, "Well, okay, why don't you play it through, and we'll see." You know, like because mm. although he wanted us to play it. I don't think they necessarily wanted to just let three idiots on stage, mm. you know? And uh, so we played it. And, you know, it's us. We're mm. pretty good. <laughs> and Robbie's like, oh, well, how would you feel about Benmont just coming in on organ in, like, the second verse? And I was like, cool. Because Benmont was the only guy I knew there. Because Benmont mm. played with Maria McKee sometimes. And Maria sang on our record. So I knew Benmont. Mm. Um from the Heartbreakers. And I was like, sure, that sounds fine. So we did it again with Ben Martin and everyone was like, that's good. That's cool. <laughs> that's cool. Do it. It worked out. I mean, it was, well, it was probably stupid to say no, but I don't know. In it, retrospect, yeah, in retrospect, but I understand what you're saying that you were more nervous, like the thought of playing with them could be, could throw you off a little bit because that then you have no control really. But obviously now I can imagine if you were approached with that lineup, I don't know if you'd say no, or maybe you would. I have no idea. Would you not? Would you say yes? Well, I'm still the same about that. I'm much okay. more comfortable playing with my guys than I am with other guys. Yeah. Because we figured out how to do it, and they know how to listen to me and go where we're going to go. Mm. That's one thing about our band is that, you know, like I said, the last thing I was saying about people who influenced me was I remember watching the band play and recognizing and watching them play like in movies and stuff, and you know, not on not a lot live, mm. but I remember looking at them. Like during the last waltz and realizing, oh, they're not playing, they're listening. Like they are playing, but the main thing going on on stage when you saw that band play mm-hmm. was that they were listening to each other. And that was, I remember thinking, that's going to be really important for whatever band I have. We're mm-hmm. going to have to listen to each other all the time. You know, and we do. Mm-hmm. And that's a big lesson, you know? I mean, there's, there's so many things that influence you as a musician. That's just four off the mm-hmm. top of my head. There's, there's a million more. Yeah, I'm sure it keeps on building as you're going as well and as you're experiencing different things and traveling to different countries and making different music. I'm sure that it, it all informs it. And especially with your podcast and everything now, you're diving into different projects. So I'm sure you are even more influenced now as well from all of that, from all of your other different things going on. Well, it goes around in circles too because like when I put on Gang of Youth, you know, I can hear us in that. I can hear I can hear Bruce in that. Yeah, Bruce definitely, and then, those, yeah, those. definitely Bruce in there, definitely. But you know, who knows if they listen to any of it? Uh, you know, because you can get it a million ways. So tell me, when you toured, obviously back when you were when August and everything after came out in 1993, you also toured with Suede and uh, Bob Dylan and gosh, um, the Cranberries. How do you look back at that time now and think like, wow, I actually had a lot of people around me, like that orbit, you know, the creative orbit. Did you chat to the bands and, and kind of become mates with them when you were touring with them or was it very professional all in your own lane? How did it kind of pan out? Well, the Dylan thing was just a couple shows. Like they... They, they were playing on this tour and they were getting local bands to open the shows mm-hmm. and we opened for them in San Francisco and then they liked us so much. I don't know if it was Bob or just somebody else, but they had us come down and do show in LA with them too. Uh, 
But then we played with Midnight Oil, and I remember really talking to all those guys. We did, like, three shows on California with Midnight Oil, and they were really cool. They were really nice to us. Uh, and the same thing with Los Lobos. Like, we really talked to them a lot, even though it was just a couple shows with each of those bands. Um, then we went on the first tour, and that was, uh, well, the headliner was Suede, and the Cranberries were opening for Suede, and we were opening for both of them. Okay. Um, and the Cranberries blew up during that tour. They weren't at all well-known. They, they blew up during that tour. They, cause they just happened for them like a few months before us. Mm. Um, but the main band was Suede, and they were really cool. I remember really uh, talking to them back then. They were really nice to us, and they were, they were really cool guys. Uh, Cranberries were really quiet. Uh, I, they just seemed like really shy people back then. I, I remember trying to have conversations with them, and it was just kind of, mm. I don't know. We were the two openers. Neither of us was anything anybody really heard of. At the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Then they blew up on the course of that tour. But then we went out with Cracker for a little bit. Mm. And Cracker was great. I mean, Cracker was, they would push us back out to do encores as an opening band occasionally. And that was a huge deal. The, the, I would say they're largely responsible for our career in a lot of ways. And then we started headlining after that. I mean, we did some shows with Stones. Mm. And we hadn't done many shows opening since then over the years. Stones and the Heat mm. might be the only bands we've really opened for since then. Yeah, you toured with the Stones in 94. I think that was before I remember your... I, well, for me as a fan, I suppose your the big turning point was that SNL performance. That was also uh, in the same year. I don't know if you remember that at all or if you're a fan of the show, but I thought that that was an amazing thing to have happen at such an early part of your career. That's probably the biggest thing that made our career in a lot of ways. We weren't even in the top 200. It was January of 94, and we played that show, and the record jumped 40 spots a week for five or six weeks, and we went from like 215 to number six and then number two, and we stayed in the top two for about a year, year and a half. I think it's wonderful to see that, you know, a sketch comedy show has that ability to, to also break new bands as well. Well, the sad thing is that TV shows have always done more to break bands than anything else has. Mm. You know, whether it's yeah. American Idol or... Because, mm. I mean, we were being played on the radio a fair amount, but we weren't even in the top 200. But SNL blew us up. That's crazy. I mean, crazy. it happened right after that. But then you only took... Yeah. Then, I mean, I know we're going chronologically now, which is actually not something that I planned to do, but I was just thinking now, you then toured... I know you toured a lot in 97. You toured like a hundred and... 20 times or something that that i think was your biggest touring year or unless i'm misquoting somewhere we went out about august right before the record came out like a month or so august of 93 and we stayed on the road until the end of 94 uh and then 95 uh, you know we were mostly we took time off and we made the record because Satellites came out in the middle of 96 sometime, mm. or late 96. So that's why there's not much in 95. Mm. But 96 and 97 would have been our second album. So we would have toured for about a year and a half on that. In 99, 2000, we were out a lot. That was when we first toured with Live, I think in 2000. I mean, it's, just, it's usually about a year and a half of straight touring after every record. But was that touring instantly something that was comfy for you? Or did you have to really get used to it? Like it was something like sleeping on a van and moving from place to place. Was that something because you were so new to it? Was that something that the novelty kind of kept you going? Or did you just have to really train yourself to get into it? It wasn't about getting into it so much as it was just physically difficult. Because I'm the one guy in a band with a, in the band with a physical instrument. And, you know, mm -hmm. when you're not used to singing every night, it's hard to sing every night. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not, especially back then when you're using shitty monitors in clubs before oh, anyone came yeah. along. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. so we're, and we're the third band on the bill. It was more that it was just physically difficult. Like, my, I lost my voice a lot. It was enormously difficult to keep my voice together. Mm -hmm. And especially because of the opening band of three, you know, I live like a month nowadays. But we play. <laughs> I don't have to talk to anybody after that i just go back to the hotel but back then you're in a club all night mm. play and then you're in a loud club while the other band's playing you're hanging out you're talking you know and then you're you're mm. playing the night later you know you don't always get sound check because you're up one of three bands and you know mm. sound is, can be crappy you can't hear that was the hardest part the first year 
What did you What did you do um, to kind of keep your voice, other than obviously living like a monk, like you said you do now? But what did you do to kind of keep your voice? Make sure that you know you actually had a voice. So just to keep it, you know, be so, be silent and try and. Well, uh, I took a lot of steroids for a long time. Oh shit! Really? You know, I didn't have much of a oh, choice. Wow. Had to. Yeah. No choice. Kind of had to. Uh, I mean, just that was the only way to get from show to show. Sometimes we just play acoustic shows. Mm. That was another thing we did that would help because it was quieter. When we exactly. And that's one of the ways we learned to come up with acoustic versions of songs mm. was because we had to. Mm. I needed to play quieter songs for a while at times just mm. to keep going. Because, you know, I really just wasn't used to singing every day and my voice wasn't strong that way. Uh, I also tried to get better technique. I would study with more voice teachers and try and get better at what I was doing so I could control it more. Mm. That helped. Um, it's frightening, though. But, you know, to we think. were also young. Yeah. I used to get wasted a lot. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Did you drink? Did you party a lot? Was it only drinks, or did you like just party in that time? I'd already been through all the drugs when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably had a as drug ridden a youth as anybody. Yeah, but I was done with all that by the time. Once I got good and mentally ill, <laughs> like seriously mentally ill, I, mm-hmm. the drugs were much harder. Mm-hmm. The drugs had a much more much more of an effect, effect yeah. on my brain then. And, uh, but I drank a lot. Um, and I really liked, I still love drinking. It was harder to do at every show. After a while, I was really wrecking myself. Did you used to drink, like, so if you were on tour, did you used to drink, like, before the show, after the show, and just, like, have it always around you? Or was it just to celebrate the show being over? You didn't know about before, but there was a good lot of during. There was probably yeah. some before, there was a good deal of during, and there was a whole lot after. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of those things took a toll on my voice when I was younger. And especially traveling around and not having that stability. And I know that a lot of, you know, when you are on that side of things, there's a lot of time lapse. You know, there's a lot of time spent waiting for the show to actually kick in. So you have all those hours, you know, between getting to a place then going for sound check, then between sound check and the show, and then after the show. So there's all those gaps in time that you sometimes have to fill. Um, so I totally hear you. I get that. I mean, it, it's kind of a it's a normalcy in the industry, right? That that's just what happens? Well, that part never changes. There's a lot of sitting around. But yeah, there's always going to be a lot of hours, especially when you're headlining. At least when you're opening, you, you sound check last and you play first. So mm. you know, that, that's a... Uh, there's less sitting around there. When you're headlining, you know, you sound check first and play last. So you got mm. all that. Yeah, so hours. much time. Yeah. But then, how do you keep? I don't know how to ask this indirectly, but how do you keep then a little bit sane and make sure that your illness isn't kicking up and make sure that you have yourself, you know, that you're checking that you're okay, making sure that you're the, you know, number one. How do you make sure that you're taking care of yourself then on the road? Well, part of it is learning to do that because the fact is at first it's really exciting, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you're and you're in a club and they're serving booze and they give you a bottle backstage or a couple bottles mm-hmm. and there's beers and, you know, you're used to going out to clubs and you get, you know, you drink. And, and also now there's all these people who want to talk to you because you're really cool and they just saw you on stage <laughs> yeah. and there's girls, you know, and it just, you know. So inevitably, it's not even like picking up bad habits. They're just human habits, you know. It's mm-hmm. just like... I'm out in a club and there's a bunch of girls and we just played. And yeah, of course I'm going to have some drinks with them. They want to get drunk. Me too. It's the same things you've been doing your whole life. It's not necessarily just going crazy mm-hmm. because you are in a band. It's you're just, just heightened. doing what you would do every night when you went out. Right. But now you're in a club every night mm-hmm. and you're driving for 12 hours to get there. You know, and you got to play a gig and your voice, which didn't matter if you yelled all night before. Now you've got to use your voice for your job. I don't go out to dinner a lot with the guys. I just because I can't because you don't think about it, but the decibel level in restaurants is higher than you think. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking over that, you're tiring out your voice. There's just a lot of little things you can do to like, you still want to have fun and enjoy it. But you also realize that there's one thing that's more important than all the other things put together. And that's being on stage and playing great. Yes, that's the goal. That's the thing. (laughs) Yeah. At some point you realize that it doesn't matter how much fun you could possibly have after a gig. Nothing is important as the gig. Mm. And you need to show the fuck up for the gig with a voice. So you just kind of 
get control of it. So what are the best parts then for you other than, you know, getting up on stage and sharing your music and being able to perform for fans? And what is the kind of crux of touring for you, considering how long you've been doing this? Well, there's nothing that is even in the arena close to what it's like to go on stage. Mm. Like, that's the biggest thing. Like, by it's by a million miles. doesn't even matter where you are, but you're playing music. That it's a job, and you get to play music, and it's awesome. <laughs> like, that is the fucking amazing way to spend your life. Mm. You know, that said, like, uh, I've known these guys for 30-plus years, some of these guys. They're, they're, like, as close to me as my family is. And so, you know, I, I do miss them, too. And it's not just the band. My tour manager joined us in April of 94. Oh, no way. My production manager, our monitor guy, who's our production manager, his first gig was the first gig of the Recovering Satellites tours. People that are with us have been with us decades. I mean, I know them. I I remember when their kids were born. You know, in the last couple of years, probably the two most devastating, two of the most devastating events in my life were when two of our crew guys passed away in the last couple of years. Oh, no. I've known them for so long. Yeah. I... I knew their kid. You know, it's like so is, tough. So one of the things about being on the road is that I live every day with these guys. Mm. I'm not very good at calling people and staying in touch and doing things. Partially because I've never been very good at that, but maybe also partially because I'm used to just I live with my friends. Yeah, you're used to having them there. Yeah, them. yeah. I, we we lived in houses together when we were younger, and we live on buses together now. And I spent. You know, my half of my life with these guys, more than half with some of them, that's a pretty intense connection, and that's a pretty big part of touring for me. Mm. You know, a lot of the most enjoyable times I've ever had on tour was me and my tour manager, and like, because we, it's like my brother. He's, we're starting tour, we have to leave, you know, what, next Saturday, I guess? Yes. But he, he came into town two days ago. He lives in Ireland. He came to stay with me for a week before we even leave on tour. Oh, wait, what's his, what and is and his name? My manager oh, that's funny. Tom, Tom Malawi. Oh, that's what. Was there any tricky situation that he managed to get you out of? Because I love like tour managers are so, they hustle and they are so, they, they, they just do their job like no other. And is there anything like tricky situation that he helped you avoid or help the band? So many, <laughs> you know, uh, it can be great. One thing about having an Irish tour manager is you really get to know a lot of the police and the fire department in New York. <laughs> it's just, that's just part of, it's all family to him too there. And, you know, mm. Tom is like, he's a big part of my life. It's incredible that he joined you in 94. I mean, that is like, I can't, especially because that was at a really big turning point for you as a band as well and so much has happened since then and the fact that you've had him by your side as well can feel also kind of familial you know you have this familiar figure next to you so I can only imagine how not safe but how nice that is to have that familiarity on the road yeah Bill Thompson our guitar tech who passed away I guess about a year ago a year and a half ago now He left Dylan to work with us. He came a few months before Tom. He was wow. there in early 94. We've been around these guys for a really long time. This mm-hmm. is like, it's been our lives. That's probably the biggest thing about touring other than shows is that, you know, these are the people I've spent my life with. Absolutely. And you get to carry on and create more memories. But as you said, you will naturally then lose people along the way as well. Yeah, that's really difficult. I'm sure. I had lost my grandparents. You know, I lost my grandparents when I was younger, but Mm. I had never lost anyone like that. Mm. Like people that I had spent Mm. every day with. Considering that I'm not a young man necessarily, it was weird that I had never had that experience before. And it was devastating. I know it's very strange, actually, because I avoided chatting to you for a very long time just because my friend, she passed away and she absolutely loved your band. And she passed away young when she was about 19. Um, And she got to see you perform. And uh, so I totally avoided you for such a long time. I'm sure you've heard like little fan stories 
you know that fans will connect to your music in a different at different points in their lives but there's nothing like losing somebody close to you and you never really get over it either your life just kind of carries yeah. on yeah I think because a lot of our music has to do with coping with sadness and also solitude. That totally. People have yes, absolutely. Very intense, uh, relationships with occasionally death in our band. You know, mm-hmm. I know one of my best friends before I knew him, his son was born mm-hmm. and they had a lot of problems at birth. And it seemed like for, a, uh, you know, about seven or eight months, like he was not going to live. He told me a million times, he just listened to. Uh, recovering satellites over and over mm. and over and over and over again. It's just yeah. that that album got him through all that. It does because it's very introspective, but there is that vessel where, like, the songs you were able to think outside of what was going on as well, which is something that not a lot of bands are able to do. They can't provide you that perspective. And I know that a lot of your, you know, a lot of your albums can do that for people. You're doing now the 25 years and counting. Great, great, good pun over there. Um, to coming up, and you're going to have to dive into your entire discography as well. Is there any moment that you maybe wrote a song, just like how we were speaking about earlier, that affected you in such a way that you don't really want to sing? Is there any song of yours that kind of hits too hard that you can't? perform or are you totally kind of dislocated from your own songs i'm so connected to my songs and that's what makes it easy to play them or easy that's what makes it good to play them the only thing i don't like doing because of the closeness of the songs and the intensity of the songs is uh i don't like listening to them with other people like i don't want to be at a if i'm in a bar and someone puts on counting crows i'm probably gonna leave (laughs) because i can't deal with that i I don't i love the songs but they're too personal for me and i don't want to sit there and like in front of a bunch of people and go through that i find that unpleasant but it's never a problem to play them because that's what playing's for Mm. playing is so that you can express emotion really emotional stuff um it's actually the more easy, the easier it is to feel all that emotion from them, the easier mm. it is to play. Yes. I mean, I think every artist is different, but I totally hear you on that. Has that ever happened before where you've been in a, in a bar and somebody's put it on because they noticed you? Has that ever happened? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's yeah. so weird. That's strange, right? It happens all the time. No. Oh, my God. Because that's people's natural reaction. And I think they don't expect me to get uncomfortable. But I do. God, that's so uncomfortable. I, I, think, I think they mean it positively. Yes. They just think it's going to be, uh, it's their way of saying uh, something nice to me. It's yes. uncomfortable for me. But I don't think, that, I don't think that's their intention at all. I just think I'm weird and it doesn't work the way they think it's going to work. <laughs> no, I mean, I would probably be the same. I would definitely bolt right out of that door, especially because you are writing from a personal perspective. I can't even... it's a very uncomfy situation how are you in terms of your fans and everything now like we're especially embarking on this 40 you know 40 spot tour you're going around so how are you feeling toward your fans and just the whole relationship especially with everything happening at the moment and how easily accessible you know things are on twitter and instagram and facebook and oh that's great i mean okay I, I, re- I always look forward to that. You know, like to me playing, it's just great. I love playing shows. Um, I, I love touring. You don't have as much interaction with the fans as we used to because, you know, you're not in a club anymore. So mm-hmm. you're not going to be out there with them. And even the theaters, the bus is parked right next door. So you usually come out mm-hmm. and sign autographs for a while. But when you're playing the big venues, uh, they're they're kind of locked away from you. Mm. You don't really, I don't have a lot of interaction with people. I mean, I'll see my friends on the nights when we're in towns where they are. Um, but mostly you just, you know, you go play a gig. Well, that, I mean, that's good because I know that obviously there was a, a moment where it got all too much. So especially for any sort of artist in the public eye, I think that that's good to have that relationship with your fans, you know, where it's healthy to a point where you don't feel kind of, you know, weighted down by it all. Well, it was a long time ago. I mean, when this sort of thing first happens, mm. no one's prepared for that. I mean, it's just, unless you're like a total egomaniac and you're just so happy to have people clapping for you. But, you know, it's <laughs> like when you get famous, that's a weird, weird experience. It's just such a change 
from the rest of your life to the bizarre gravity of fame. I mean, there's no way to even explain it to people. It's so fucking weird. Mm. And I, I really struggled with that at first. But that was like, you know, we're talking 1994. So long ago, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've adjusted, you know, like anybody would. It definitely caught me by surprise at first. But, I, you know, I adjusted. And, you know, it's a, I still am not the most comfortable person with other people. And I, I probably never would have been. I, I was always going to be. Mm. I, I'm just not the most social cat anyway, you know. <laughs> I've always been kind of a little closed off to yes. the world. Yeah, which is good um, in a know, way. Probably, yeah. You know, I have some mental illness problems, and mm. those things, you know, they they take their toll on things like that, on relationships with other people. So when you get in a situation where you have relationships suddenly with all the other people in the world, mm. that's a little weird. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think I'm fine with all that now. Are you happy now? Like, is this where exactly where you envisioned being in your career? Um, well, I mean, I'm, it's kind of amazing to still be here at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, I, I don't think we've exactly figured out how to put out music right now. So, like, our last record, which I think is my favorite record we've ever done, mm. kind of disappeared a little bit. Mm. And so did Underwater Sunshine, the one before it. I, yeah. I would like to figure out a way to put music out a little better so that we can make more of an impression on people. I hear But, you, you know, yeah. That's, that's everybody's struggle. Yeah, everybody's, it's so yeah. difficult. I mean, you you mentioned like on your podcast, you mentioned Spotify and Pandora and all these and not having actually the physical, you know, vinyl or CD in your hands when you're listening to the record. And it's such a conundrum that everybody, even as a listener, everybody's struggling with how do I keep my attention on one thing when there's so much shit going on in the world, you know? It's a really difficult riddle. You can't, it's a lot of people are struggling with that, I think. Well, it's a great thing in a way. I mean, there's so much. As a music fan, it's an overabundance of great music that mm. it's just you're just constantly drowning in great music. Um, but as a music, someone who does it for a job, you know, you still want to make an impression yourself. So I have a side of me that loves it and a side of me that doesn't love it as much. I know you mentioned your last album and the one before that, but are you currently going to, you're going on tour, you're going to play a lot of your, a lot of the different albums and, and change it up every night, I'm sure. But are you writing as well? Is there a plan to release something or do you have songs already recorded? Well, I've got a lot of pieces. and Okay, that's a good start. I'm just not sure what to do with them. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not sure what to do with them right now because I know how I am. As soon as I start finishing them, I'm going to want to like, in an unstoppable way, I'm going to want to record them desperately and then I want to put out a record. Mm. And the thing is, I don't know how to do that right now. So I'm kind of trying to keep myself a little bit treading water until we figure out an idea of how that should be done. Mm. Are you excited about the moving parts or all the little parts that you have already? Are you excited about that? Sure. I mean, I, every time I write something new, I, I'm really excited about it. I just, I'm, I'm sort of holding myself back from turning <laughs> them into full songs because I, mean, I want them to make an impression on people and i'm not sure how to do that exactly are you not a perfectionist though are you or are you in terms of your own art probably but i'm not sure what people <laughs> think of as perfectionist i mean I, i want a song to be perfect but that doesn't mean like note perfect just means that song is absolutely what i want that song to be but i could write the perfect song in 20 minutes or i could mm -hmm. write the perfect song in three years it's not about like going right. over it and over it and over it and over it again. I, I know when it's perfect. I don't try not to put out anything on any record that isn't exactly what I want it to be. Mm. But that's not necessarily about play it over and over again and get it perfect. I, I like mistakes. Personally, I really like to leave mistakes in songs. But, you know, I'm perfectionist as far as what I want perfect to be. <laughs> yes. But it's not the same thing as just making it perfect. Making it perfect. I think one of the things I did on Wonderland was use characters that weren't me. But even those characters, I mean, what we're trying to talk about in those songs are things I feel. Yes. You know, the characters in Characters in Politics Park aren't necessarily me, but that's a song about how I feel about things. 
it's a very personal song how I feel about things. Is there anything that like fans want to hear to death and you just like, I cannot play that song again? Is there anything you avoid? Well, we kind of never played Einstein on the Beach, but that's because oh. I, I never really thought of it as one of our songs. Mm. It was just, it was a demo that I was fucking around with mm. that ended up on a rarities record. But it was never even considered for an album. It's just this like joke demo that became a big hit. Um, but I've never really, we've never really played it. I, I I'd never really thought about playing. Do you think that you will play it now that you're thinking about playing it? <laughs> Do you think that that's something? No. It, oh, <laughs> you're like no. <laughs> I'm still not thinking about playing it. I'm just I'm just musing about never playing it. I'm, I'm still not thinking about playing it though. That is I mean. I don't think it's that good a song. Yeah, no, I hear well, you. Because I don't think it's very good. Yeah. I think it's clever, and I it's it was mm. always more clever than meaningful. And for me, our songs need to be meaningful. I never even mm. for a moment considered putting that song on a record. Mm. I mean, it was never. We, I had that song before we made the first album, and it, it wasn't even a second where I considered recording it for the record. It just came out because Geffen wanted it on a Rarities album. And that still wouldn't, no one would ever have heard of it because no one knows the song on those Rarities album, except that that was right at the moment where I told Geffen we wouldn't put out any more singles for the first album. Mm. And then we were done after two songs. Mm. And they released that and put it out as a single. Otherwise, you'd never have heard that. Yeah. In retrospect, I should have let them put out Rain King because that was supposed to be the single. I know. You could have you yeah. let them put out what you wanted them to put out then. I was trying to slow it. And the record was getting out of control. Mm. You know, it, was, it was too. It was a little too. It was big, and it was going to be too big. Mm. And I was worried about a backlash. And then when they put out Iron Sound on the Beach, we got a backlash on the next record. That's exactly what happened. I mean, I was pretty sure we shouldn't put out any more songs. Mm. And I was right. Yeah, that it made it even worse when they did what they did. Yeah. And that kind of salted the relationship even more, I suppose, when you just know what's right for your band and then somebody else kind of takes control. Well, I mean, look, they're a record company. You're always going to have a sort of difficult relationship. You just have different aims in life. Totally. You know, their aim is to sell as much as they can right now, and your aim is to make your band last for the long term. Those <laughs> yeah. aren't the same thing. No. I mean, I, that's not, it's not like that one thing is a big thing. There's a million things. There's always going to be a million things in the record company. Because mm. that's what record companies are. But, and lastly, tell me a little bit about the Underwater Sunshine Festival. What is that? When is that? It's October 12th and 13th here in New York. Okay. Um, for years, we did this thing called the Outlaw Roadshow, which are these free concerts that we would put on, these free festivals that we did in New York, in Austin, in uh, Nashville, in Toronto. Uh, and they were really great. This year, uh, a bunch of us sort of split off to do our own thing. All very amicable. Ryan is still doing the Outlaw Roadshow, and I hear they're really cool. A bunch of us split off to do Underwater Sunshine. Um, well, we split off to just do our own festival. Mm. And then when when James and I decided to call the podcast Underwater Sunshine, a couple of days after they heard, there was like a conference call about stuff for the festival. And all my partners asked me, how would you feel if we called the festival Underwater Sunshine? We <laughs> said, well, we just love the name. It was the perfect name for that record because that's what you were doing was like sort of shedding light on things that don't get seen. Mm. And it's a great name for the podcast. And honestly, it's exactly why we want to do a festival. So we think we should call the festival that too. And I was like, yeah, well, all right. Sure. <laughs> I see that connection. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a cottage industry full of a number of things that don't make any money. Uh, I, I, yeah. We're going out, we found all these great bands, you know, and we're going to put on these free shows and try and. We just started last week. We announced the first. We've announced all the bands a while ago, but now we're doing week by week announcements with website pages and like more in depth about one band at a time, starting okay. last week all the way up to all the shows. Can you name uh, a few bands to... playing? Can you sure. shout out uh, some bands that you're excited about that are playing? Well, Sean Barner. Uh, he's a mm. friend of mine who's played several Outlaw Road shows. Uh, Sean, S-E-A-N, Barna, B-A-R-N-A. He made a record this year that is one of the best records I've heard in years. It's brilliant. Uh, I actually sang on it because I'm so knocked out by the record he made, I wanted to be on it too. <laughs> um, I'm really excited to see him play with that band because I think it's incredible work he's doing now. Michaela Davis, 
I stumbled upon her because I was looking up one of the other bands on Audio Tree, mm. and I stumbled upon a session with her band. And she's like in this session, she's playing a full concert harp, and her guitar player is like bowing his guitar like it's Sigur Ross, and the drummer's playing drums and then switching over to xylophone. Oh my gosh! And uh, that was four years ago. They're they're quite different now, but she's still on stage with a full concert harp, and it's fucking amazing. Yeah, I'm and the, sure. The new record they just made absolutely blew my mind it's such a good album um i love it i can't wait for it to come out she is just really really good i'm excited we have steven kellogg's gonna play now i love steven's band boom forest the band that's opening all the shows this summer is also they played several outlaw road shows and they're gonna play underwater sunshine this uh, fall as well that's and amazing they're really good. jp Rose, the singer for that band is a genius are you involved in like a lot of the back end of the organizing for the festival or is this something that like you are just finding the bands to play and then you'll be there? Me and my friend Barbara kind of run it. Okay. Uh, we run the whole thing and then different people have different jobs as well. Like what we do when we do these festivals is we have like, we film acoustic sessions with the bands at my house all, right. all day, every day. Oh, wow. And then we do the shows at night. So we film, we might, filmed 40 bands here that week there's probably 15 or 16 playing in the festival and it's 18 but we'll film hopefully up to about 40 bands that week here oh wow so we, it goes on all day there's a lot of different jobs to do and you know we all work on it together and you love acoustic i know that you mentioned it earlier and a lot of your you know live albums that you've brought out and a lot of the shows that you've taped those have been acoustic as well so that really makes sense that you aligning with that and doing that kind of project well, it's not so much that I love acoustic music as I love music that takes whatever you're doing and does it differently. Right. Like, if you're doing acoustic music, I'd love to see you play it all electrically. And because uh, often most of our songs are electric, I like to do different versions of them and give you more of one way to look at a song. Yeah. I, I enjoy that. Yeah, That's you always change songs. I know that you, like, rewrite them live, and I know that you've added verses. I remember watching watching your band play live, and then you added some verses in. And, you know, you change it up often. So that really makes sense. Keeps it fresh. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, these songs are living things. And I like to keep experimenting with them, I guess, is the best word for it. Do you have one show that you saw that still is stuck in your mind? Like thinking about creating this new, you know, festival in October and going on tour now to 40 different uh, cities and places. Is there one show that you've watched yeah, I saw the Blue Nile play, Ooh. Scottish band, the Blue Nile. Yeah. I saw them play at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco in like 1990-something, I don't know, 1990 maybe? Wow. 89, sometime in that period. And they were incredible. That's like the most emotional show I've ever seen. It was, it was amazing. This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and The Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com, Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and The Consequence Podcast Network where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. listened this far why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmbtgpod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you already Consequence Podcast Network.